Okay. Well, good morning, everyone. And thank you so much for coming out on this snowy morning for an extra hour of catechesis. It's kind of a winter wonderland out there, which I don't think all of us were quite prepared for. At least I wasn't. Um, okay, we'll start with our prayer from the second Sunday in Advent. Let us pray. The Lord be with you. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by the patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Amen. So one thing I noticed recently when I was looking at this prayer is how hear them, read, mark, learn and inwardly digest is exactly the patterns in Lectio Divina. If you ever, in Lectio Divina, um, we have those different steps. First, you, you read the word, you hear the word, and then the second step is to hear again and find that one scripture that you feel is like the scripture that God wants you to hear for that day. So that's Mark. Um, learn we ask God, what do we need to learn from this? This is just basically that step. And then inwardly digest is that um, meditation upon the word, eating the word, letting it get inside you. Um, so anyway, um, this morning we're going to be talking about William Jones Nayland uh, of Nayland. And this is an obscure, in my mind, a very obscure theologian I've never heard of, but he's, he was actually very, very important in his time, um, which we'll get to in a minute. But before we get into him, I just want to kind of review again what we're talking about. What is figural reading? And so I'm going to ask you a question, true or false? All words are figural. Yes, yes absolutely they are. So when you hear someone say, oh, figural reading, they wouldn't do that because that means that they're getting these outlandish ideas from the scriptures. Nope, that's not what that means. Figural reading means you're just reading the word and reading the Bible in a way that you should be reading words. Um, there is one of my favorite books on language has this cartoon at the beginning of it, which is um, two guys at a bus stop. And the caption isn't like, when is the bus coming or... Hi, how do you like the snow? The caption is, the biological name of the duck is Histronicus. And so the idea of this cartoon is to say, what do you think they're talking about? And you actually have no idea, do you? Because you can't just take that one sentence. I mean, you could say, oh, um, maybe this guy is just really shy and this is his way of making conversation. He's like super nerdy or something. Or you could say, uh, maybe that guy just asked him a question about ducks. Or you could say, maybe they were talking about ducks because there were ducks at the bus station. But you really have no idea because you can't take a sentence out of isolation of the conversation that it's inside. And that's all that figurative reading is doing, um, is it is not isolating 
words and sentences from each other in the Bible. So on my handout, I have the summary. Um, refusing to privilege and a part of the canon because all of God's lights combine, that we are dis to discern how all God's words interlock with others across history, books, characters, through similitude, resonance, and moral form, and see connections in all corners of the scriptural text. And when they're using these words like similitude, resonance, and moral form, that's actually referring to this fourfold medieval understanding of reading, that we look for what we can learn. We look for the eternal spiritual meaning. Um, we look for the different levels of what a word could mean. Um, how is light in Genesis 1-1, how is that like light when Jesus says he is the light of the world? Um, so that's what figural reading is. And we embrace the power of our imagination. We think about scripture across all the canons. And that's exactly what William Jones of Nayland did. And he was a theologian. So I picked him because I thought this might be really interesting to understand how he read the scripture in the Anglican tradition because he was a theologian. He was writing about doctrine. And we often think of doctrine that we have to find these propositional statements in scripture and match those with the doctrine. And my folks, that is not the way you do, do theology. You do theology the same way that you do when you read the scriptures. You look at what the word is saying in relationship to all the other things the word is saying across the whole canon. And William of Nalen understood that. So, um, he was a rector of a parish church in Nayland. It was in Suffolk. It was a very obscure little village. He wasn't famous for being the rector of St. Paul's in London. He was famous for his very, just volumes and volumes of the theological works and essays and sermons. Um, in the early, like 1810, somebody compiled all of his works into one single, the works of William Jones of Nayland and it was six volumes. So he was very, very prolific. You know, I couldn't think of that word when I wrote this, so I put fertile. Oh, well. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah. So he, and how he came to this in many ways was that he was a man of the book, not just the Bible, but also the Book of Common Prayer. And he felt that the tradition that was handed down to him to understand the Bible and to understand what we believe was all in this Book of Common Prayer because the Book of Common Prayer was full of scripture. And you, when you read your Book of Common Prayer, you, often you say, you know, that sounds familiar. Well, it does. Um, someone in the um, 19th century, there's this liturgical scholar named Henry Ives Bailey. And he wrote over 800 pages of, to discuss all the identifiable scriptures in the Book of Common Prayer. So it was a lot. I don't think I want to read those 1,800 pages, but I find that pretty interesting. Um, so, and he felt that, um, that Cramner really understood, first of all, the importance of worship. And when we worship, that we recite creeds. Uh, such as the Nicene Creed. And he was a high churchman. This was before the Oxford movement, but 
the, the high church was still around. Around This was inheriting um, the tradition of Archbishop Laud in the um, earlier 1600s, mid-1600s. They fought a civil war over high churchmanship. And there was this cluster of priests and bishops who very much still adhered to more of a high church worship. And what was really important to them was this idea of the apostolic ministry of um, the threefold <clears throat> clerical uh, priests or deacons, priests, bishops, that this is rooted in apostolic authority. That was very, very important to them. They liked to trace the bishops all the way back to the first bishops. And, but one of the ways they did this was they said, it's not just that we're related to these people, but we are also related to their teaching. So he understood the, how important the creeds were because the creeds went all the way back to the early church, even beginning with the, um, <clears throat> the principle of um, faith, the rule of faith. So um, this was one of the ways that when during this period, the Enlightenment was going on and he, uh, Nayland was a part of the Enlightenment. Things you have to understand in, in the um, early 1700s, late 1600s, what we would call a Renaissance man was not that uncommon. So um, <clears throat> uh, Father uh, William was um, taught, he had a degree from Oxford in theology, but he also had a degree in the natural sciences, and he also had a degree in philosophy. So he was very interested in observing the whole world, very much kind of an enlightenment guy. Um, he wrote like a he was admitted into the um, uh, the the um, what is it? the Academy of Sciences? That's so important in London because of his work on a book called uh, Six Lessons on Electricity. So, um, but he was also very concerned that the Enlightenment figures in the Church were starting to waver in the creedal faith. And so this um, controversy over Trinitari Trinitarianism arose. Um, first, there were the people that were, um, Arianism became a thing, really, in the late Reformation again. And um, these ideas were growing in many of the lower churchmen. Um, some of the priests that were educated at Oxford were really dabbling in these ideas. And um, this resulted in this book that was called the, um, the, scriptural, the Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity, published in 1712 by a man named Samuel Clark. And he was a priest in the Church of England. He actually had a very important curacy in London. He was actually a wealthy man because of that. So he wrote this book where he took, um, let's see, he took, Let's see here, 1,251 12, proof texts to demonstrate that the Trinity is not the Trinity. So he just listed all of these proof texts, and basically he was trying to argue that one God and only God referred only to the Father and that there was only one God and that when the sun was referred to, that was a separate being, that was a distinct being. He actually thought that that was like, 
that Christ was like an angelic being, inferior to the Father. So he did all these proof texts, and that was very, very consistent with this empirical way of studying things that arose in the Enlightenment. In other words, he took the Bible, and he took the words, and he examined them just by themselves, or a phrase just by themselves, like a scientist would. And um, Jones was pretty upset about this because he thought that he just completely didn't understand the way the Bible worked, that he was treating it like it was a natural species, like a word like any other word. And we know that it isn't a word like any other word because it's God's divine word. And so he felt that rather than these enlightenment biblical scholars that were trying to examine the word simply from a naturalist point of view, a word is a word, he felt, no, you cannot do that. You have to also look at it as a divine word and that there is one author of this holy scripture and that he had one intention and he brought all of these words together to bring a cohesive message. So he felt that, that he was completely, this William Clark was completely reductionist in his understanding of language and that he felt that they were, he was turning exegesis into some sort of taxonomy, like, you know, measuring biological, coming up with biological names for things. So instead, Clark felt that the words of the Bible were always bumping up against each other and that the meanings that people assigned to them were always shifting into new context. And like other words, they borrowed words from the Old Testament. So he sought, he wrote a rejoinder. Um, he did pretty much the same method that Clark did, which he would list a verse of scripture, although he would also provide a commentary on it, explain where it was, came from and the context of it. Then he would list another scripture that he felt could be paired with it that would help you understand what the two different scriptures meant. So we're going to kind of look at, I actually found that book, believe it or not, on Google Books. Um, <laughs> so, um, but, so I, I grabbed a bunch of his different references, and I thought that we would like kind of look at that and see if you think that works as a way of understanding the biblical idea of the Trinity. So first of all, he really felt that Clark had missed it because Clark did not refer to any Old Testament verses in his book. It was all the New Testament. And again, Nolan uh, Jones, um, Father Jones was like, it all fits together. How can you do this? This is one God speaking through both testaments. So he used different pairs of scriptures to, to um, allude to the fact that the writers of the Old Testament may not have understood completely, what, especially in the prophets, what they were prophesying, because they were prophesying the way to understand prophecy is it, um, and this is from my um, Dr. Uh, Van Wegeren in my class in my PhD program on the prophets. He said there's all these different levels to prophecy. The first one is what the prophet is saying to the people that are right there. And then the second level is to, he's actually might be prophesying what be, might be happening 20 or 30 years or maybe 100 years, so that the near future. And then this, the, the, the last level is the far future. 
And again, these were words that were given to the prophets by God. So they, they couldn't understand that perhaps when they were talking about the Lord, they were talking about Christ. But when you look at the prophecies, you see how beautifully it all actually really does fit in. And that is what um, William of Noland was trying to do. So who has 2 Peter 3.18? If you would stand up, and I'm just going to have you guys read these out loud. Okay, thank you, Jim. Oh, wait a minute. We need a microphone. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Okay, who has Isaiah 43, 11? I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Okay, so what are the, is the connection between those two? Savior, right. The Savior, that yes, without the, me there is no Savior, so it's part of the Godhead. Exactly, exactly. Um, John seven forty one. does anyone have that one? John seven forty one. Well, wait a minute, hold on a second, because that might be one of these pairs that I have here. Uh, no, if you would do that, Rich, thank you. John 7:41. Oh, excuse me. No, 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 no. Wrong sheet. Okay. Excuse me. John 1:14. <laughs> John 1:14. Okay. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay. Isaiah 6, 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Amen. Yep. Do you see the connection between those two? the name of the Lord of hosts, right? Um, okay. First Corinthians, well, let's do Psalm 78, 56 first. Might be easier for Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. Okay. And what is that referring to when they rebelled against the God most high? What, what situation are they talking about? That's Israel in the desert, right? That's in the des desert when they were worshiping the false God. Okay, so let's turn to 1 Corinthians 10.9, which is from Paul's um, his, uh, discourse on the Lord's Supper and how he's comparing it to um, idols. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Okay. So there you can see how Paul is drawing on an Old Testament um, 
situation, an event, not prophecy, just to show that continuity of how the lessons from the Old Testament, we can learn about those, but also that they were rebelling against the same God. Um, so, okay, then we've got, okay. Then there were the, those that, we're gonna skip for the second, third one for now. Then he also looked at scriptures in the New Testament that could be related to each other. Um, and, and intertextuality, which is called uh, relating to or involving a relationship between two texts. Now, I realize what I'm doing here is taking one word and another word, and that's actually not what you're supposed to do, but if just imagine these inside larger passages, and I think you'll get a better idea of how they relate to each other. So um, let's look at 2 Corinthians 5.19 and John 14.11. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Okay. This one is a little bit, um, this is very interesting, actually. Let's go to John 14, 11. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Okay. So, 2 Corinthians, so, so in the scripture that Tammy just wrote, read, Jesus identifying himself as being in the Father and that the Father and he are one. That's a very important Trinitarian idea that is in John. But pairing this against 2 Corinthians 5.19, would you mind reading that again? Sorry. <laughs> In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Right. So we have one agent there. We have God reconciling through his son, and we have the reconciler himself, the one who died on the cross to um, to make that reconciliation between human beings and God. So um, that is something that he, um, Jones was specifically referring to Clark because he used the scripture that um, Henny just read to say that it was just one God who was doing, who was the agent of the reconciliation. And Jones of Milner says, hey, wait a minute, no. That's not it, because we understand from the Gospel of John that Jesus identified himself as being one with the Father. So I've got a few more, but I think what I'm going to do is I've got a couple here, and if you guys could just look those up together as a group, and maybe one of you could look them up, and here you go, if you want to participate with them. If you could each, if one person could look up one of the scriptures, another person look up the second one, and then talk among yourselves whether or not you think it works and why it works, and then we'll have a little discussion. Have a little discussion among yourselves. There you go. Maybe Bruce can. If you guys want to join, like, with them, it's a very short exercise. So we're just going to spend a few minutes on this. 
<clears throat> oh, I've got one more. Okay, here you go. Here we go. Okay, you guys ready? Okay, um, we, we can just do, let's start with this group, and why don't you tell us which ones you're using? And read them, you can read them. So everybody can, because they're short, go ahead and read them. Um, we had Luke one thirty three, which was about God. Oh, yeah. hello? Yeah, okay. hold it up. Um, <laughs> just go ahead and read We them. had Luke one thirty three and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 24, then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And so we were interested in that at once seems God giving the kingdom to Jesus and then Jesus giving the kingdom back to God, or there's this like interplay of the kingdom going between them and we're just going to hide in the Trinity <laughs> with that one. 
That's great. Yeah, I like that. I actually hadn't seen that, that it was an interplay between the two. Yeah. I like that. Okay, next group. We had a very obscure passage, John 3.16. And, <laughs> and we also had Ephesians 5.25. So, Hold it up. Um, so God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then Ephesians 5.25 is, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we were thinking, uh, first of all, in the giving up that Christ did for both here for the, um, the church, but in Ephesians, I'm sorry, in John 3.16, for the world, but he didn't do it for the world alone. He gave it up for those whosoever shall believe in him, which we connected to who then is the church. Mm -hmm. So um, we were looking at those two, and obviously the connector was God's love mm -hmm. um, in this. But it says, for God so loved the world, but here it says, for Christ's love. So you have that connection between God which in John 3.16 would appear to be the Father, but here you have it, Christ himself. So there were those connections, and then there was obviously the sacrifice that was made right. uh, for both. Yeah, I, I mean, I would never have thought of pairing John 3.16 with husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, but both of those passages are talking about sacrificial love, first of all, and then there is... Um, the two persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son, and yet they are one in their will, and that is one of the ways we understand the Trinity, as there is, in the Trinity, there is one will. And so that's, um, often when I'm teaching on the Trinity in my systematic theology classes, I say, you know, just forget all these, like, little examples, like the egg and air, water, and earth, and all that. Just read the scriptures. And especially look at the scriptures where you see, like for instance in Christ's baptism, where you see Father, Son, and Spirit acting together, one will. And yet each person is doing something for that one will. And it's just, and I think these scriptures, which I would never have thought of pairing, are another way to understand the Trinity that helps you beyond these silly models that never seem to work. I used to think you could say, like C.S. Lewis, that the world is three-dimensional. Um, but then somebody said to me, well, you know, now they're discovering there's a fourth dimension. So that one doesn't work anymore either. Um, okay, next person. <clears throat> there we go. So we had 1 Peter 2, 7 through 8. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And then we also have Isaiah 8, 13 through 14. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's a direct quotation, so it seems pretty <laughs> obvious <laughs> pretty that it obvious. works. Yes, yeah, it does. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just interesting how these images, though, are go work across the canon, like foundation and stone. You see those. Okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. 
So we have Matthew 11:10. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And then, let's see, I think it's Luke 1, 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. So the first one is a quotation of Malachi. Mm-hmm. And it's, so it's two different levels of the same prophecy, where you know, Malachi looking forward to John the Baptist, and then the second is Zechariah speaking you know, directly to John the Baptist in the present. Right, exactly. Yeah, that, thank you for that little extra lesson there. Um, is there one more? I think we have a couple on the Holy Spirit still. <clears throat> yeah, Jones had a chapter for, first he had a chapter on uh, the divinity of Jesus, then he had a second chapter on the divinity of um, the Holy Spirit, and then understanding the Trinity is three persons. So this is from the chapter on the Holy Spirit. Right. Thing. We have Matthew 9.38 and Acts 13, 2 through 4. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send our laborers into his harvest. And then Acts 13, uh, 2 through 4. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So it's the laborers to the harvest and Barnabas and Saul being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Right, exactly. And then the first reference is that uh, from, um, yeah, so anyway, go ahead. Anybody else? Is that it? Okay, good. Well, thank you. I also want to talk, okay, so there's two things Nayland is no, known for, Jones of Nayland, and one is this idea of intertextuality. Um, he really brought that method to the fore. It was really important in the um, time that he lived in. Clark's book was extremely controversial. Um, it came up for a vote before the convocation of bishops, and he kind of issued kind of an apology for it, saying he wasn't really trying to veer from Nicene doctrine. And there was many bishops that wanted to find a loophole for him because they actually supported him. They, they, were, they were interested in Unitarianism and thought that perhaps you, the early church had gotten it wrong. Um, but this is what's really interesting is that Parliament, it came in front of Parliament, and Parliament used this 1679 act of blasphemy against Jones. And so he ended up having to completely retract what he'd written and promise never to write or speak about it again. However, he did, only in privacy, in privacy with his other scholars of his own ilk. And he actually revised the prayer book. He took out all the references to the Trinity and inserted his own references to the one God. And guess what? That prayer book is still being used by the Unitarian Church today. So, history lesson. (laughs) Uh, Clark, yes. Yeah, Clark. I think I said Clark. Yeah. Clark was the one that was 
that Parliament said you're being blasphemous. So th that was the one instance, maybe there's very, very few, where maybe that relationship, that close relationship for church and state in England maybe worked because, um, you know, the lords didn't know any better and they thought this is just blasphemy. You know, they weren't like learned like these bishops who said, no, 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 we really can, we might be able to see that in the Bible. So we've got a few more minutes and I just really quickly, um, I have left you with an excerpt and I'm gonna let you read that on your own um, on the, the figurative language of the scriptures. And one of the things that Jones loved to do was take, uh, because he was a naturalist, he would take something from nature, like light, and then he would take the idea of light and just write about it all through the canon. And that is what this uh, particular um, essay that he wrote did. It's really, really beautiful. And um, I, I would encourage you to read it. One of the things I found very interesting is he starts out with, of this figurative language, the elements first to be understood are those who are borrow, borrowed from the image of nature. So he thought the figurative language in terms of the symbols and the, um, uh, the ways in which he would pick something from nature because he felt that nature, that God was speaking through nature and that you could take something like light or fire or water and see how there was a divine idea behind those that applies to spirituality. So in this one, he does this with light. And um, he talks about all the different places. He says, you see, our God is light. This is the middle of the second paragraph. Our Redeemer is light. Our scripture is light. Our whole religion is light. The ministers of it are light. The Christian people are children of the light and have light within them. And then he finishes, this is the moral doctrine to be derived from the usage of light in the sacred language because we are to be showing the people of the world this light uh, and that we have a better rule to direct us as a rule of faith or a rule of behavior. And then I thought, you know, I'm going to take a few more minutes because we got a late start. <laughs> and I don't see all those, any people out there just rushing to get inside here. Um, so the, um, what I thought is he took these figures that he saw in scripture and applied them, but then he applied them to worship, which I thought was a very interesting move on his part. Um, and so that he talks about to this day, um, we worship the altar, we face east, and we do, I mean, the priest is facing east in our church when, we, um, when he um, presides over the sacrament um, the primitive Christians called their baptism their illumination to denote which a light is put into the hands of people. So we know that we do that in our baptismal. And also that the festival of Christ's baptism, which is what we call candle mass, is also lighted candles. So he kind of transferred that image of light in nature to how it's applied divinely in scripture to help us understand our spirituality and our relationship with God and then transfers it to worship. The other thing he did is he looked very closely at the prayer book for ways in which this would play out. So very quickly, turn to page 118 in your prayer books, and we're going to look at the prayer of humble access. And this will just take a few minutes, but I think it's really important. <clears throat> so 
At the fraction, we say Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And Jones wrote on that, and he, he wrote about how um, Cramner was taking a, um, a, a verse about Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, which I actually believe is in, I believe, Hebrews, right? You're, correct me if I'm wrong. But he said that Cramner inserted that there because it's such a strong image for us right before we take the Eucharist. This breaking of the bread, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So as we participate in worship, we're not just receiving words, we're also receiving images. And he said that, that when we see that Christ our Passover, we think of that Paschal lamb at when the Jews were preparing to flee from Egypt and they had to find a perfect lamb. Um, and that innocent, uh, this is what Jones writes, for the character of our blessed Savior was answerable in all respects to that of the Paschal lamb. He was without blemish, innocent and perfect in his nature. And as the prophet describes him, like the lamb when brought to the slaughter. So that, so that he, he goes through in this work that I'm, lectures on the figurative language of the scripture. He goes through many different parts of the prayer book to show how um, Cramner was using the figurative language of worship, of the Bible in worship to present those images before us. The prayer of humble access, which we pray every week, is very, very interesting. Um, Cramner actually wrote this prayer, okay? It wasn't an ancient prayer, but he borrowed it from old collects. He borrowed it from the Liturgy of St. Basil. He also borrowed it from, believe it or not, Thomas Aquinas. But he inserted two scriptural images that, if you think of it, are completely out of context. And one of them is the um, Phoenician woman when she asked um, Jesus to heal her. And Jesus said to her, it is not right for to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And she said, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And again, that is an image from uh, an event in Jesus's life. We're taking it completely out of context, and yet the context fits, doesn't it? It completely fits, because we are like that Phoenician woman. We are not worthy to eat the crumbs from under his table. So, um, I just, I want that, I'm, I'm done now, you can go. But I, um, I wanted to end with that because I just think it's really important to understand this Anglican tradition of reading that how we take this, the images in our Bible, they're in the prayer book and then they're transferred to our worship. So thank you very much.